Hello, everyone. Uh, good to see you all in this room and as well as um, through the live stream. And it's always a privilege to be able to, uh, you know, call this our church um, as a body and get to worship together wherever we are. So uh, I rejoice with you all in that. Um, today I'll continue on in the series in the book of Philippians. Um, so I'll read the passage for us, and we will pray and go into the, uh, the message together. So please turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 26. Again, it's Philippians 1, 18 through 26. It says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ, in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which is indeed unfailing, unshaken. It's solid. On this rock, we would like to stand and, um, and do everything that we do in our lives, God. So feed us, feed your church this time with your word, and um, for me, Lord, uh, may I be uh, bold and clear in proclaiming your word, and may I do this for Christ alone, because he alone is our everything. So help us, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon is The Christ-Driven Life. Uh, I kind of got that from another famous book called uh, The Purpose-Driven Life. And uh, I might have shared my story before, but a part of my conversion story is that uh, I read this book, The Purpose-Driven Life, by Pastor Rick Warren when I was a senior in high school. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't read the whole book. <laughs> I only read like a few chapters in the beginning, but 
I remember at that time, I was blown away. Because at that time, my whole world was about getting good grades and you know, going to good college, um, just you know, satisfying my parents or whoever else, right? Uh, so there was really no purpose in my life. But then in these few chapters of the book, talking about how we were created for this purpose beyond ourselves and that this purpose really matters in life. And that got me. And that realization, um, you know, created a spark in me that eventually led me to following Christ. So that's my story. And I wanted to talk about that in the beginning because this chapter, this passage, will be talking about purpose of life. So let me ask you, what is your purpose? Do you have a clear purpose in your life? So my hope and prayer from this passage is that, that we will be spurred on to a clarity of the purpose of our lives. So let's delve in. As usual, I have three points for you. Um, first point, Christ is my vindication. Second, Christ is my life. And third, Christ is my mission. First, Christ is my vindication. Verse 18, uh, rather the second half of that verse says, yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul starts out this passage by saying that he will be joyful. And it's odd because currently he's in prison awaiting a trial that might acquit him or it might uh, kill him by execution. So the rest of the passage, you know, he will be addressing why and how he can have this joy in the midst of this crazy circumstance. So verse 19, it says, For I rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul says the current tough situation will eventually result in his deliverance. And the word there, deliverance, can at first sound like he's talking about literal deliverance from prison. That is the acquittal from, you know, his trial and imprisonment, um, which, as we see later in the passage, might happen. So it's possible that he's talking about that by that word. But I believe that here Paul is actually talking about deliverance in a spiritual sense. That is, he means a vindication by God's court as opposed to by human court. I have three reasons for that. First, the Greek word here translated deliverance is actually soteria, which Paul normally uses in the Bible for salvation from hell to eternal life. And second, at the end of verse, two, verse 20, Paul says that he will honor Christ by life or death. And that's a little strange, isn't it? Because if Paul really means an actual deliverance from prison, then the death should be out of the equation. But he seems to keep the, the death by execution as a possibility for him uh, because I believe he's talking about something else by 
deliverance. And thirdly, last, a close examination of this text in Greek shows that Paul is actually quoting um, from a Old Testament passage word for word, verbatim. It's from Job 13, 16. Um, if you know, Job is a well-known righteous sufferer in the in Old Testament, meaning that his suffering, even though he doesn't deserve it, he didn't do anything wrong to deserve that. But in the story, his friends come along uh, to comfort him at first, but then they end up accusing him that he has committed a serious sin that has resulted in this suffering. And in response, in this particular passage that Paul is quoting from, Job declares that he hopes to appear before God for a trial in which he believes that God will vindicate him, uh, meaning that God will prove Job right and prove the friends wrong. So now back to Philippians we get a clue of what Paul is trying to say. Like Job, Paul is surrounded by accusers, right, in his life. On the one hand, we saw in the previous passage that there are some Christians, you know, who wished his doom. And on the other hand, wherever Paul went, unbelievers opposed the gospel, and they mocked him, and they humiliated him. And in fact, that's exactly why he's in prison right now. There were people who wanted him dead for the gospel. But in the spirit of Job, in this situation, Paul is turning to God and trusting that God will vindicate him and he will prove his gospel right and he will prove those who are mocking him wrong. I believe that's why he's saying uh, this in verse 20. So I read it. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Meaning, regardless of the verdict in the human court that he's about to stand before, at God's court in heaven, Paul will not be ashamed because God will hold up the gospel and he will honor Paul's Christ, he will honor Paul being a faithful witness, and he will, on the other hand, shame all his accusers. So that's why, you see, Paul can be joyful in this situation, because he knows, he believes in God's ultimate deliverance and vindication. And it's, I think it's kind of like, like this uh, in our own lives. You know, do you have like, I don't know, best friends or perhaps your family members, you know, who you turn to you know, for relief. Meaning that, you know, when, you know, other people criticize you or mock you or condemn you, you think of these people in your life that you know that they know you, that they will have your back. No matter, you know, like, even if everyone else in the world thinks you're crazy, these people in your life, will think that you are right. And you find comfort in that, and you talk to them and share your struggles with them. And I wonder, that's what Paul is talking about here, that even if these people that we turn to might fail us at times, 
God will not fail us. God will not fail him. And that he knows that God knows Paul and that he will vindicate and he will understand what he's going through and you know, he will honor him as opposed to his enemies that he will shame him, shame them. And, and Paul finds comfort and joy again in that. And as I was talking, about, uh, thinking about how this can be applied to our lives, uh, my answer from the passage was prayer. You know, someone once said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I thought it was a very encouraging quote. And, you know, as I'm preaching to you right now, I wonder what kind of hard battles that you are going through. And when we see Paul, Paul also is fighting a hard battle in his life. And we also see that he's striving to put his hope in this vindication by God. We see that. But then we, what we also see alongside of that is that he asks others for, for prayers. So we read in verse 19 again. It says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Meaning, because you guys, Philippians, are praying for me, and I know you will continue to pray for me, that the Holy Spirit in me will help me to hope in God's vindication, and I'll continue on, I'll keep fighting my hard battles, and I'll finish my race, and therefore I will not be ashamed at God's court. So the lesson for us is, again, no matter what kind of battle that you are going through right now, please share with others and ask them for prayers. Because the promise from the scripture is that God will use those prayers to help you, to help you hope in the ultimate deliverance. So Christ is my vindication. Second, Christ is my, is my life. So in verse 20, Paul ended the verse with a, sort of an extreme note. He said, you know, either by life or by death. So this begs a question. You know, Paul, how can you be okay with death? You know, how can you be joyful during that time? So Paul will answer uh, in the next few verses, like why that is so. And, and here what we have is really Paul's personal mission statement about his life. So we read in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So first he says, to live is Christ. I mean, without thinking any further, plainly in that sentence, what he means is that to live, to have living breath on earth equals Christ. Meaning, the entirety of Paul's life is about Christ. Um, back in college, um, when Deb and I started dating, you know, she uh, made a playlist for me. That was really nice of her. And uh, 
And one of the songs that she picked for that play playlist was this song called uh, <clears throat> Everything by Tim Hughes. It's, it's a very old song that I don't know. I don't know if any of you know. But the verse goes like this. It says, God in my living, there in my breathing, God in my waking, God in my sleeping. And it, it just keeps going like this in this pattern and addresses all different areas of our lives. So he, he keeps going, you know, God in my resting, working, thinking, speaking. God in my laughing, weeping, hurting, and healing. And then the chorus of the song goes, be my everything. Christ in me, Christ in me, hope of the glory. You are everything. And I think this is essentially what Paul is saying by the phrase, to live is Christ. That everything he does in life, it is by Christ, about Christ, and for Christ. So everything he does has the clear meaning and purpose. And I think this also can mean that Christ is now the measure of what success means in his life. That is, you know, if you did something for Christ at the loss of material things, that's success. That is a good life. But if you were successful in the eyes of man, and yet Christ was missing, that is a terrible life. That's a failure. So Christ is everything to Paul. And I love how Paul very cleverly alludes to this in the text using words and grammar. He repeats the word Christ over and over in total five times within eight verses. It's as if Paul is trying to say, hey, my life is Christ, 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 Christ. He's my everything. It's all about him. And, and with that in mind, we move on to to die is gain. And it makes sense within that framework. So verse 23 actually explains, spells out what to die is gain means. It says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Meaning, to die is gain for Paul, because when Paul dies, what? There will be more Christ. Again, Christ, 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 even in death, Christ. And what that means is this. At death, Paul will be delivered up to the presence of Jesus, and he will be with Jesus forever. That's what the phrase means. And here, it will be helpful for us to pause and confirm what Christians believe about death, what happens after Christians die. The Bible says there are two stages uh, after death for those who are in Christ. First is the intermediate state, and the second is the resurrection. So first, you know, when they die, their souls live on and are immediately taken to the presence of Jesus where you know, they will have perfect fellowship with no more hindrance from sin and any other distractions. And then afterwards, when Jesus comes back second time, those souls in Christ will gain resurrection body. 
uh, like that of Jesus and have, still have the perfect fellowship, but this time even more complete because the, the physical aspect of that fellowship is restored too. So to be sure, for Paul in the Bible, the ultimate hope is the resurrection. No doubt about that. But in this passage, the intermediate state still grants him the one thing that he always wanted on earth, but he couldn't get enough of, which is the perfectly conscious and intimate fellowship with Christ. So what, what does that mean, conscious and intimate? First, conscious. You know, sometimes New Testament uses the word sleep to describe the death of Christians. But that is, you know, obviously euphemism, meaning that the reality throughout the scripture is that after death, the, the souls, our souls will be fully awake. And ironically, we will be even more alive than when we were back on earth because we're given this perfectly restored mind to comprehend and enjoy Christ. And have you guys had, you know, that moment when you, you know, took a sip of, like, a caffeinated drink, and then, like, you feel, like, really awake? Um, for me, I guess I'm a little sensitive to caffeine, I realize, but I had that experience uh, when I was sipping a, a ice Americano, I believe, at this very classy coffee shop in Wisconsin called Collectivo. Some of you guys might know, so it's a very classy the pride of Wisconsin, I think, but it's a good coffee shop. I loved it, but man, it was so strong that when I took a sip of it, like my eyes opened wide, and then everything in life made sense, and everything about the world was beautiful. You know, that experience, a little exaggeration there, but imagine though, having that kind of experience and, you know, things like that with the most beautiful and the most satisfying being in the whole wide world, Jesus. Think about that. And you'll be able to soak in all that he is. Conscious and also intimate. You know, interestingly, at every wedding, the vow says, I'll love you forever until death do us part, Right? meaning that the sweet intimacy in marriage will end when death comes. But there exists intimacy that death cannot, will not do part. And in fact, that intimacy will grow richer and deeper after death. And that is what we'll experience with Jesus after we die. So you see, at this thought, thinking about what's, what's going to happen after he dies. Paul is excited. He might be giggling at this point, thinking about that. But you see, by this statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is how Paul views his life then. That's his, again, personal statement, mission statement. That because Christ is everything to Paul, and Christ is present in both his living and dying, Paul is okay with any option, either option in his life. So, so he goes in verses 22 through 20, 24, he says, 
If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for, uh, on your account, for your sake. Meaning that living, the option of living, means fruitful labor, labor, and he will be serving Christ and glorifying Christ by helping others. But the other option, dying, means, again, more of Christ to enjoy for himself. So because of Christ, Paul's life is fine in any situation, in any options. That's how he views his life. There's a story um, from an Eastern proverb. Maybe some of you might know this story. I think a lot of speakers use this story. But the story goes, you know, there was one farmer whose horse ran away. And the neighbor said to the farmer, oh, such bad luck. And the farmer said, maybe. But the next morning, the horse returned, bringing with the horse three other wild horses. And the neighbor said, that is wonderful. And the farmer said, Maybe. And the following day, the farmer's son uh, tried to ride one of the wild horses, but was thrown down and broke his leg. And the neighbors responded, oh, that's terrible. The farmer said, maybe. And the next day, the military officers came to the village to draft young men uh, to go to a dangerous war and exempted the farmer's son because of his broken legs. And the neighbor said, that's so great. And the farmer said, maybe. And I think the neighbor's response in this story really portrays how a person reacts to life's event without Christ, right? And if, if things work out the way you want, you know, like you gain more horses or in our context, more fortune, and you know, your son's life is spared and you're doing well in your health. Oh, great. Life is awesome. It's wonderful. But if things don't work out the way you want, you know, in the story, you know, the horses run away and, you know, your son breaks his leg, then, oh, man, life stinks. It sucks. But let's inject Christ into the story. If Christ... Is in, is in every situation of our lives, then if, if I lose, again, material things, horse runs away, whatever, and I'm not as capable physically, then that perhaps means that God took away those things from us so that we can enjoy Christ more exclusively without, with less distraction. And if I gain more things and my life is spared and more secure, then I have more opportunity to serve Christ with the resources. And by the way, this is different from the farmer's maybe response, which may represent the Zen master emptying your mind approach. No, no, no. What we're talking about here is more filling your mind with Christ. Christ makes all the difference in your life. So the question, is Christ everything in your life. And you know, 
as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I think the last thing I wanted from this point and from this passage was, you know, for us to gain more head knowledge, saying, oh yeah, Christ is everything, and we live for Christ in all we do, which is the right Bible answer. But what matters is that my heart and your hearts really believe in this, right? That in my heart, I really, really, truly treasure Christ over anything else in life so that I can, I could surrender all for his sake. What matters is our, is our heart, and it really has to be the supernatural work of the Spirit in order for us to wake up and really embrace this reality as my own. And, and you see, that's why, you know, one of the reasons why we're having the retreat in a few weeks is with the hope and prayer that God will use it to awaken our hearts beyond just what we know in our head. And, and because we know, you know, perhaps a lot of us are struggling right now because of the pandemic and we're not able to really benefit from church community, you know, physically together. So that's our hope and just praying that God, please, please use these opportunities to wake us up and treasure you, treasure your son. Help us to come back to you, Lord, so that you are truly our everything, that we can say it with confidence. May that be the case for us, for our church. Um, so Christ is, is my life. And third and last, Christ is my mission. So now Paul will apply this Christ everything mindset into his situation at hand. So he goes in verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. So Paul is convinced that he, his staying alive would be more fruitful and necessary for the Philippians. So he believes that he will be acquitted from the trial and, you know, get out of the prison and, you know, we'll be able to minister to the Christians in person. And now, right there, this may sound contradictory to, you know, what we have been reading because up until this verse, you know, Paul sounded unsure about his fate, you know, like whether he will, he will live or die. But I believe the, this conviction and confidence of Paul uh, really comes from, you know, his careful study of God's word. Meaning, here's what I mean. You know, as somebody, you know, who enjoys the deep relationship with Christ, Paul, you know, he has gotten to know Christ personally like you would a close friend. You know, he did this through the word and prayer. And especially he must have gotten to know in the word that, you know, Jesus' whole life was about serving others to the point of dying on the cross for them. So applying that intimate knowledge to the situation, Paul knows that Christ would want him to stay on and serve others' needs and glorify him that way. 
So Paul is convinced, not thus as the Lord, but he's convinced that Christ would allow him to live a little longer and bear fruit among the people. So with that in mind, now notice the, the fruits of his ministry that he lists here. Again, verse 25 at the end, he says, I'll stay for your progress and join the faith, which simply means that uh, because of his ministry, their um, you know, growth will happen. The growth of their you know, Christian life will happen. They will be more joyful as they experience more of Christ because of Paul's ministry. And second, verse 26, he says, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Ultimately, this ministry of Paul to them in person will result in glorification of Christ, that people will praise Jesus because of Paul's ministry. So what this means is that this is a demonstration of, again, what to live is Christ means for Paul. That when, we're, when he's given a little more time on earth, what he will do that is that he will purposefully use his time that he has left on earth to serve others for Christ's glory. And let me phrase it differently, that he will live on mission. That's what he means by that. You know, I, I've gone on several short-term mission trips. I think I've shared this before. Um, and I can say it, it's a very hard experience. And, and maybe, you know, many of us have not gone before on this trip, so please imagine with me. It's hard because, you know, it's a different culture, different, you know, infrastructure, so a lot of things are inconvenient. And, you know, just things are not the way you're used to. But most of all, it's hard because you're kind of always on the edge, kind of stressed out because, especially if you are introverted, because you have to push yourself to talk to people. You can't, you're not on vacation on this trip. You have to, you know, push yourself to talk to others and be kind to them and also communicate the message of the gospel to them. So you cannot hide in a corner in this trip. So, you know, logically, naturally, in the middle of these trips, people start you know, kind of complain, complaining and they start missing home because they miss the comfort and ease of, of you know, back home. And, and I still remember this one friend on that trip. He kept missing um, the American toilets because the country that we were in didn't have a very good flushing system. So he kept like talking about it every day, like, oh, I miss the toilets back home. Um, and, and I think what that shows is that people just start kind of daydreaming about, you know, back home, like, oh, man, things are just so much better and things are wonderful and a lot rosier back there. But what's interesting is once people come back home, when we have like this um, debriefing or reunion as a team, unmistakably they all say, man, I miss the mission field. I miss being back there. It was uncomfortable, but guess what? It was fulfilling because I had a purpose during those few weeks. And being back home, I know things are more comfortable, 
but man, it's so mundane, and I'm losing my purpose, and it's not really fulfilling. You see, for Paul, his life was as if he was on a mission trip. He had a very clear purpose of glorifying Christ by serving others. And in return, he received joy and fulfillment in his life. So you see what I'm trying to say here? If we claim with Paul that to live is Christ, what that means is that we are to live the rest of our lives, no matter when Christ will call us home, we are living as if we are on a mission trip, that, that we live to serve others, that we live to glorify Christ in all we do. And the, the truth is, that might be uncomfortable, inconvenient, and hard, but that is the most fulfilling life because you're living for Christ, the one that matters the most in the universe. Fulfilling, satisfying life. Living on mission. So what does that mean for us? I, th I think living on mission can take many forms in our lives. You know, first, obviously, it includes you know, being more active witnesses to the gospel, you know, to our neighbors and coworkers, friends, family members. And I think as a church, you know, we have this opportunity uh, during Welcome Week 2, which is coming up shortly in August. Um, but I think living on mission also includes being faithful and active in all of our callings too, such as, you know, being a parent like myself, um, or being a friend, you know, being a spouse, being a worker, being a student, being a servant in the church, etc. Showing that to live is really Christ in all areas of our lives. And lastly, I think living on mission can mean really going out of our comfort zone in our lives and wisely risk for Christ. Meaning, again, going back to that mission statement of Paul, to live is Christ and what? Dying is gain. And if dying is really gain, there's really nothing to fear, right, in our lives, if, that, if we really truly believe that in our hearts. And what that means is God is calling us to come out of our cocoon and risk for him. And I don't know. I just thought of this, maybe God is calling some of us, you know, for some sort of ministry, vocational ministry, whether in the U.S. or in overseas, coming out of your dreams and whatever that you're comfortable with. But I also have in mind here these days uh, the social justice movement. The question that I ask myself and perhaps we can ask as a church is, what would it mean for us to become more daring in our effort to, you know, love and speak up for our neighbors in need? But at the same time, we also ask, what would it mean for us to do this as a means to exalt Christ, not just doing good deeds in the eyes of men? 
I think it's something that we can wrestle together as we wrestle through uh, this time of our society. So again, in closing, the question that I asked earlier in the beginning, I ask again. Uh, are your lives purpose-driven? Do you have a clear purpose in life? And obviously not just a, any purpose, a purpose, but the purpose, Jesus Christ. Is he your life? Is your life to live as Christ and to die gain? Let's pray together. As we um, close our books, close our Bible, our notes, um, could we just spend some time mulling over what we just read and what we just heard? Again, I, I repeat, I think this really has to get to our hearts. It's easy to say, to answer test questions or quiz questions, saying that Christ is our life. He's our everything. But it's a totally another thing to say whether that is true in our hearts. So would you Spy your hands with me and wherever you are, just pray. God, could you use my quiet times every day? Could you use this retreat? Could you use all these means of grace to awaken my heart? Because without the awakening, I will live my life either purposelessly or with a wrong purpose. Lord, may my heart come alive and be able to really live as though Christ is my life. Help me, God. I do not want to live, continue living, especially, you know, during this time of pandemic, just losing fulfillment in life. I want to come back to you. Or for some of us, I want to discover you for the first time. Can we pray that for uh, just a few moments and um, we'll sing the last song and we'll close. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your grace uh, that it's not the magnitude of our faith um, that ultimately saves us, but it's the magnitude of the object of our faith that is you, so that we come before you whether we feel like we have um, great faith right now, that we are doing you know, great spiritually, or that we are doing poorly, that we have been away from you. But thank you for bringing us all here as a community and um, be able to hear your word and um, hear what you have to say to us in every situation, in any situation of our lives. 
So Lord, help us um, as we mull over your word and Christ. Lord, we desire, we want that Christ be our everything. But we know that many times we fail. Even now, it's not easy for us to say all we have is in, is in Christ, that all we want is Christ. So that's our prayer, God, that by your spirit, through prayers for one another, by the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, may we be able to fight our good fights and keep fighting for your glory, keep, keep living for Christ and gain your joy along the process and in our daily lives, God. So encourage the discouraged and keep us going in this journey um, as long as you will have us on earth. Thank you, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.